Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today, we are lucky to have Dr. Amy Carney as a guest. She's Associate Professor of History at Penn State Behrend. Today, we will discuss her recent book entitled Marriage and Fatherhood in the SS. This book appeared with the University of Toronto Press in its series on German and European Studies in 2018. Hello, Amy. Welcome to the show. Hello, Michael, and hello, listeners. (laughs) All right. Um, To start out, uh, I want to start in kind of traditional fashion here on the New Books Network. Uh, I was wondering if you could discuss uh, a little bit of your uh, professional, um, or sometimes it gets a little personal biography, uh, and tell us how uh, how your interests in the fields of German studies and gender studies first developed. And then I think our listeners would also be interested in hearing the circumstances that led you to research and write this particular book. Sure. In both cases, it's college, actually. My interest in German studies dates back to my junior year in college when I completed my history research seminar. I wrote a paper on the German attempt to invade Britain, Operation Sea Lion, and from there I was hooked on modern German history. As for gender studies, my introduction came a year later when I wrote an English honors thesis on Helen of Troy. So very different topic there. (laughs) But then I went to graduate school for history. And one of my original research interests was children. I wanted to research something about children in the Third Reich. So I started to read the primary literature, the secondary literature, and then I added in all of the related scholarship on women. And as I was doing all this reading on women and children, the question popped into my head, where are the men? Men as husbands, men as fathers, where are they? And in looking for the men, I discovered that the SS had a lot to say about families in general and SS families in particular. And I built my research from there, showing how the SS not only supported individual families, but also how SS leaders promoted the idea that these families were somehow bound together as a community. And in particular, I show how SS men as husbands and fathers were crucial to establishing this family community. Great. Thank you. And in some ways, that's a nice segue to my next question here. Um, And I think one of the things that really impressed me about your introduction was that you demonstrate a real mastery of the relevant literature on your topic. And on the one hand, you review the historiography of the SS, and you also give lots of uh, space to mentioning previous histories about sexuality during the Third Reich. Um, Yet you also make a strong case for why your project is so original, and you've already um, shared with our audience a a little bit about that originality, I would say, with your first answer. But I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about what makes your book such a new contribution. Absolutely. So like you just said, that was one of the things I kind of already answered in that 
men were missing from the scholarship. And that's not terribly surprising that earlier scholarship uh, focused on women, especially as wives and mothers, because that scholarship reflects the reality of life during the Third Reich, because the regime itself uh, stressed the importance of women and wives and mothers. But again, because the husbands and the fathers, the men were missing from the scholarship, I really do believe that's the biggest contribution of my book of showing how men had an important place in their families as husbands and as fathers. And these men, these SS men in particular, and these SS families, uh, they collectively belonged to something called the family community, or in German, the Siebengemeinschaft. And SS officials, especially those working for a particular office, the Race and Settlement Main Office, they dedicated a tremendous amount of time and resources to developing this SS family community. And by showing throughout my book how much effort went into developing the Siebengemeinschaft, both its ideal and its reality, I think one of the arguments in my books that, that is really important is to show how this family community was a crucial component of how the SS defined itself as an elite order that intended to serve as the new aristocracy in Hitler's Thousand Year Reich. So to me, I feel an important argument is that uh, understanding what the family community was, understanding its place in the development of the SS gives us a much greater insight into the ambitions and actions of the SS and of its members. I think that uh, eugenics plays an important role in your book. And there are probably many listeners who have some familiarity with the eugenics movement if they teach about uh, Third Reich history or modern Germany, uh, certainly. But I was wondering, for those who don't, if you could offer a brief overview of the eugenics movement in Germany prior to the rise of National Socialism. Um, And then in particular, I was wondering if you could add to that and discuss the role of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Anthropology, Human Heredity, and Eugenics in your book, meaning what role did it play in this lead up to national socialism and then uh, in the actual Third Reich era itself? Okay, so let's start with eugenics. Eugenics was known as the well-born science. The basic idea here was that the so-called best and most fit people in a society should be encouraged to reproduce and the so-called least fit people should be discouraged if not prevented from reproducing. Scientists and physicians in Germany had promoted eugenics since the late 19th century. Like their counterparts in other countries, such as Britain and the United States, these men truly believed that using science to regulate reproduction really was in the best interest of individuals as well as the nation. But the imperial government in Germany had not adopted any of the proposals suggested by eugenicists, nor did the Weimar government initially take eugenics seriously until it decided to support the founding of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Anthropology, Human Heredity, and Eugenics, which is always a mouthful, so let's call it the KWIA, (laughs) in 1927. (laughs) So the first director of the KWIA, he claimed that the work of his institute, if implemented, would improve the hereditary health of the German people, and one of the tasks of KWIA personnel was to educate public officials about eugenics. This education began in the Weimar period, it continued in the Nazi period, and KWIA officials offered special classes on eugenics for SS doctors. And this knowledge about eugenics, in particular this knowledge in the SS, also ties back to your last question. The efforts 
by the SS to build the family community was applied eugenics. SS officials turned eugenic rhetoric into reality, and their efforts were the largest application of positive eugenics, that is, using eugenic measures to encourage reproduction. SS leaders believed that their men represented the best elements in German society, and so only the best wives would do for their men, which in turn these officials believed would lead to the birth of the best children. And of course, best is being defined here by their own racial view of the world, that the Nordic race was the apex of civilization, and that SS families were the bearers of this racial superiority. But that is a big contribution of my book to show how the SS extensively applied eugenic-based measures to build families as no group had done before. Great. Thank you for that answer. And uh, at this point, I think it would make sense to delve a little bit more deeply into the manuscript and some of the specific chapters. And so starting naturally with your first chapter, um, this is where you discuss the uh, engagement in merit marriage command for members of the SS by Heinrich Himmler in 1931. So please explain this command and its importance. The engagement in marriage command was pretty brief. It's just 10 short points. But in those 10 points, Himmler mandated uh, that each SS man was required to receive approval to get married. And this would be starting in 1932. And approval or denial of an engagement and marriage application was based on a very extensive evaluation of the racial and hereditary health of an SS man and his potential wife. The importance of this order can't be understated. The engagement and marriage command was the foundation for the entire SS family community, and it brought to decade at fruition decades of eugenics proposals. Great. Thank you. And... Um... Another one of the um, interesting aspects of your book is that you show how members of the SS sometimes did not follow their procedures ac- exactly as uh, Himmler uh, wished that they would have. So uh, in the case of marriage, it seems uh, most of them conformed. Um, however, you do cover some cases of men who deviated at least somewhat from expectations in pursuit of a spouse. By, and by expectations, I mean SS expectations. Um, Could you share some details about these exceptions with the audience? Okay, absolutely. Uh, Like you said, most men conform to the expectations. Hundreds, if not thousands of engagement applications were actually approved each month. But on occasion, yes, I did find some examples where men insisted on marrying women that SS officials wanted to reject. So I have a couple examples here. One such case involved a couple named Walter and Anna. An evaluation of Anna's family history revealed several cases of hereditary defect and disease, and this would be defect and disease as defined by the 1933 sterilization law in Germany. And based on this family background, Walter's superior in the SS tried to explain to Walter why he could not marry Anna. The superior officer tried to convince Walter that he would get no personal satisfaction from this marriage uh, to a woman who could not give him many healthy children. Well, Walter did not believe his superior or the medical reports on Anna's family. He, in fact, claimed that doctors had assured him exactly the opposite. And he also informed his superior that he was not going to break his word to Anna. 
So the superior officer relayed all this information to Himmler, who was quite dismayed that Walter did not understand the principles of the SS or that the point of a marriage was to have lots of children. So Himmler not only rejected Walter's marriage application, but ordered Walter's release from the SS. So that's one example of a case where, you know, someone did not wish to conform to the rules and the regulations for marriage. A second case involved a couple named Hans and Hedvig. Officials in the uh, SS Race and Settlement main office rejected their engagement application because Hedvig did not meet the organization's physical standards. And I should point out that physical standards did not mean the blonde hair, blue eye stereotype that is commonly associated with Nazi Germany. Rather, physical standards meant physical fitness and overall good health. But Hedvig, at four feet eight inches short, was not seen as physically ideal for the wife of an SS man. So Hans was told that he had to decide if he was going to break off his intended engagement or requested dismissal from the SS, which was allowed under the original 1931 engagement and marriage order. Well, Hans's response was neither. He intended to remain in the SS and he intended to marry Hedvig. And he asked for the support of his superior officers and he got it. These officers confirmed that Hans had a good reputation and that he wanted to comply with all rules in the SS, including its marriage rules. And one of these superior officers also pointed out that Hans had known Hedvig since 1927, and he had intended to marry her well before the 1931 Engagement and Marriage Command. And all of these endorsements, along with Hans and Hedvig's application, were sent to Himmler, who rejected their application and ordered Hans dismissed from the SS. Interestingly, Hans was not dismissed, and he remained in the SS, and he kept requesting approval to marry Hedvig. And eventually, Himmler did relent, although he stated that while the couple could get married, they wouldn't be eligible to join the SS family community. Yeah, thanks for sharing those examples from the book, I always think. Um, uh, examples like that give us the sort of, uh, you know, the sense of the, the, the messy day-to-day nature of history, even with, uh, you know, an organization that was pretty rigid like the SS. Oh, absolutely. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I think another thing and uh, something else that the chapter sheds light on, uh, well, well, those examples kind of, uh, give us a sense of uh, everyday life of SS members. I think your first chapter, in many ways, also shed some light on the rivalries and tensions between, you know, prominent national socialists. And there's obviously a very uh, rich literature on this. Uh, and in this case, you depict um, some friction between Heinrich Himmler and Richard Walter Dare. And I was wondering if you could discuss their conflict as described in chapter one and offer, you know, um, how you think this, uh, you know, fits our larger perceptions of power relations in the Nazi party. Sure. Uh, So in in general, within the SS, pretty much anyone who uh, oversaw an SS main office knew that Himmler had a tendency to intervene in affairs and this is just one of many examples of that intervention. So uh, Richard Walther Dare, he was the chief of the Race and Settlement Main Office from its establishment in early 1932. And he believed even after the war 
that regulating marriages was the most important task of his office. As for that conflict between Himmler and Dare, uh, Peter Longrich actually goes into more depth on the subject in his biography of Himmler, so that's a great source. But in short, by late 1937, Dare was growing mistrustful of Himmler. He was concerned about the amalgamation of the SS and police. And he was worried about maintaining strong ties with the peasantry. The peasantry was always very important and maintaining ties with the peasantry was always important for Dari. And in his concern about the SS in particular, Dari wrote at one point, quote, worried about the future of the SS. Would it be better for me to give up the race and settle main, main office since the SS is developing into a capitalist Praetorian guard under Jesuit supreme command? End quote. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the first time I read this statement, his comment, again, his words, the SS is developing into a capitalist Praetorian Guard under Jesuit Supreme Command. <laughs> that really caught my attention. <laughs> I'm to sure. Me, yeah, uh, to me, this phrase really sums up the SS in a lot of ways. But for this, in this particular case, it also showed how Dare's priorities and Himmler's priorities had diverged, especially as Himmler and many of his other high-ranking subordinates were very intent on this time, continuing to expand the power, the influence, and responsibilities of the SS. Uh, Dare himself was not. So Dare tried to resign toward the beginning of 1938. Himmler did not accept it, and their relationship subsequently began to deteriorate. Dare began to withdraw from all of his official responsibilities in the race and settlement main office. And finally, about half a year later, Himmler uh, accepted Dare's resignation. Although it's interesting, the level of their estrangement was not at all evident in the letter that Himmler wrote uh, where he announced Dare's departure and thanked Dare for all of his service. Great, thank you. And uh, I think at this point, it would make some, some sense to then to move into your second chapter, and I'm going to ask a question that doesn't necessarily look at the main focus of the second chapter, but really interested me greatly. And uh, so chapter two examines Himmler's desire to increase the birth rate among those whom he deemed uh, fit according to national socialist ideas about race. And part of this effort led Himmler to take strong stances on both abortion and queer sexuality. And so for those listening who are not as well versed on these topics, I was wondering if you could uh, discuss the consequences of his feelings on these matters. Sure. Uh, Himmler, again, as you pointed out, he had very strong opinions on both topics. And so because of that, he established the Reich Central Office for Combating Homosexuality and Abortion in 1936. This office was a special department in the police, which Himmler had been appointed to lead earlier in the year. With abortion, Himmler believed that there were some 500,000 abortions every year, despite its prescription under law. He believed that preventing these abortions would decisively influence the future of Germany. These children were wanted additions to him, either as future soldiers or future mothers. And he was adamantly convinced also that abortion caused sterility for the mother. With his views on homosexuality, Himmler's views were far more draconian. He was particularly obsessive with trying to eliminate homosexuality because he believed that it would destroy the state. 
He even claimed that the presence of some one to two million homosexuals in the country was an epidemic because these men did not contribute to the growth of the population. For the SS in particular, if it was discovered that an SS man was homosexual, uh, that SS man would be dismissed from the SS. He would then be tried before the court because homosexuality had been illegal in Germany since 1871. And then in the 1930s, the Nazis passed laws to uh, strengthen that definition, to change that law. But for Himmler, punishment by the court was actually not enough. So here it would be the person would go to court, would have a court-assigned penalty. And after that court-assigned punishment was over, Himmler declared that the former SS man would be sent to a concentration camp where he would be shot while trying to escape. If that were not enough, the SS unit into which the man served would be informed of his crime and his punishment. So here we have both of these cases with abortion and with homosexuality. Himmler made it quite clear that he believed that the decisions that a man or a woman made in his or her personal life were anything but private. Yeah, and I think... uh... You know, we have some nice histories about both of those topics, but I also thought you gave uh, a really nice overview in that chapter. Um, now, I think a lot of what you were, um, or, or a much bigger focal point for you in your research in this chapter was your discussion of the Lebensborn program. And uh, you mentioned in your book that there is a lot of uh, mythology surrounding Lebensborn. So I was wondering if you were willing to help separate myth from reality for me and my listeners and explain how this program also fits into your larger book manuscript. All right. So let's start with the myth. Uh, The myth about the Lebensborn program uh, is that these homes were nothing more than brothels or stud farms to produce supposedly racially superior children for the Third Reich. So that's the myth. Scholars have been disproving it for decades, but that myth has held pretty strong. In reality, what the Lebensborn program was, it was part of the SS. Its homes were maternity facilities where the wives of not only SS men, but also SA men and police officers, uh, these wives could go to these maternity facilities and receive care before, during, and after the birth of their children. But here's the thing. About half of the children born in the Lebensborn home were illegitimate. Now, for Himmler, as long as both the mothers and the fathers were deemed racially and hereditarily healthy, again, by Nazi standards, by SS standards, then these illegitimate children were welcome additions. He actively promoted illegitimacy in the SS. Although he was in the minority, most SS men not to mention most Nazi leaders, as well as most of the public, rejected illegitimate children. Uh, Eugenicists also rejected illegitimate children. In particular, they believed that illegitimate children were inferior. So while there's that maternity home function, that was the first purpose of the Lebensborn, and that plays a role in my book. The second purpose of the Lebensborn plays a bigger role in looking at the SS and its family community because The second function of the Lebensborn outside of maternity homes is that the program also provided some financial support to child-rich SS families. And that was a popular term at the time, child-rich. Child-rich was defined by eugenicists as four or more children in a family. 
The Lebensborn didn't have much money to provide to these child-rich SS families, but the fact that the Lebensborn was financially supporting large families was important. SS officials were very intent on supporting each SS couple and having a family, and there were several avenues of financial support for SS families, including these limited funds from the Lebensborn. Great, thank you. And uh, I've always... um... I study, uh, do a lot of research about German Catholics, and I know that the German Catholics were always had very strong reactions to both the myth and the reality of the Lebensborn program. Uh, so I found that section very interesting. Um, so another aspect of your book that I think is really interesting is you really, uh, from the introduction onward, you place a great emphasis on uh, change over time. Um, and you don't want us to get caught in viewing uh, family and fatherhood in the SS as static or marriage for that matter. So um, I'd be curious to hear you talk about how conceptions of family, marriage, and fatherhood changed over time within the SS. And my memory is you devote two chapters um, to how the war altered policies regarding marriage and family. So explain for us what changed, especially with the war. So again, with marriage, of course, the entire process began with that 1931 engagement and marriage command. And the process laid down in that command seemed pretty simple, seemed relatively straightforward. But then over the next eight years, there were a whole series of additional orders and regulations that were created that made the process of getting married and starting a family a whole lot more complicated. And then the Second World War broke out. So with most (laughs) men... (laughs) With most men serving in either the Wehrmacht or the Waffen-SS, it became actually increasingly difficult for the men to compile the necessary paperwork and to complete all of the necessary medical examinations that were required in a timely manner. So the SS had to consider how do they deal with the wartime situation and having the men get everything in, in, in a timely manner. But even when the men could get everything in and submitted to the Race and Settlement Main Office, By the wartime, the Race and Settlement Main Office had far fewer personnel to process the applications. And on top of that, the number of applications grew during the war because of the creation and the expansion of the Waffen-SS. And one of the interesting things I found in my research is, of course, that not all members of the Waffen-SS were German. Many of them were not, in fact. But they were still required to comply with all of these marriage regulations. So a member of the SS had to actually comply with the regulations no matter what branch he joined or when he joined. For the families, in the 1930s, there was a a lot of rhetoric encouraging each SS couple to have children. The SS newspaper, Das Schwarze Korps, routinely promoted the family. That was actually a constant both in the pre-war and in the wartime period was the newspaper and how it promoted the family. But in the 1930s, in the pre-war, one of the most Uh, important pieces of rhetoric that was used uh, within the SS calling on the SS families to have children was the idea that the political victory of the Nazi party in the 1930s had to be complemented with a victory in the cradle. And this idea, this notion of a victory in the cradle, not only should be with the political victory in the 1930s, but then once the war broke out, that victory in the cradle was now associated with the military victory. And uh, that a victory in the cradle would now support a Nazi military victory. So SS children were always, excuse me, SS men were encouraged both pre-war and wartime 
to have these children to have to uh, contribute to this victory in the cradle. And in this encouragement to have children, this would be legitimate children, but also always illegitimate children as well. And during the war, especially, these men were repeatedly promised that if they fell during the war, they could die, not only knowing that they had fought for the fatherland, but that they had secured their genetic lineage in their children. So that was a very prominent message during the war. And during the war, the Race and Settlement Main Office, along with other several other SS offices, they uh, changed a lot of what they were doing to start providing a lot of support to SS widows and SS orphans. And the SS appointed an advisor to oversee the needs of every single family. And the advisor was to assure each widow that she and her children were still part of the family community, even though her husband, their father, had died. So with both marriages and families, the war certainly had an impact on procedure. Procedure had to change. But the constant between the pre-war and the war is that the ideal of the SS family community remained intact. It was equally important pre-war and wartime. Great. Thank you. And at this point, uh, I'd like us to um, you know, move to the final chapter in your book. Um, there's lots of other good ones in between, uh, including some wonderful photographs um, in one of the middle chapters. But uh, I'd like us to talk a little bit about your final chapter. And one thing about your final chapter that I found interesting uh, in a book that focuses so much on fatherhood is you discuss how some children of prominent SS members remember their fathers. Um, And I think uh, that was a really interesting way to um, start to wind uh, down the manuscript. So I was wondering if you would be willing to discuss a few uh, examples that you have in the book. Sure. For me, there were probably two of those examples that stood out the most. The most notable example was Himmler's daughter, uh, Gudrun. She only publicly spoke about her father once in 1959. She did not believe that he had committed suicide, and she wanted to rehabilitate him uh, by writing a book about him Uh, which she never ended up doing. But until her death, until 2018, she continued to defend her father. And she also supported a post-war group that helped former Nazis escape prosecution and provided them with financial aid. The other example that really stood out to me was Ermagard, who was the daughter of Leonardo Conti. And he was the Reich health leader, as well as an SS officer. Ermgard published a memoir in 2008, and it was interesting to read about how she would talk about how she admitted that she still adored her father as a child, and she still, even when writing the memoir, she noted that she still cherished her memories of the time spent with her father as a child. And she talked about how for a long time she did not want to believe that her father was complicit in anything malevolent, but eventually she did come to terms with her father's actions. So those were two of the examples I had, and I thought it was interesting to look you know, after the fact at what these children might have said about their fathers and what that could tell us potentially about fatherhood at the time. Yeah, and there are uh, examples that really get at, uh, you know, the, I guess, the intimacy of family life, even when we're dealing with these, um, you know, war criminals from the SS. Um, and uh, I, I was glad that you included that in that chapter. I found it. Uh, made the final chapter more dynamic. Um, 
So I have another question about something from your final chapter, but it's really also an issue that you deal with in the earlier chapters and throughout the book. Um, so this issue is that, um, you know, in many parts of the book, you, you try to explain why SS members did not have as many children as Heinrich Him- Himmler would have wished them to. In many ways, this is was the one area where members of the SS um, didn't comply with what the SS was asking of them in, in great numbers, really. And so why did these men who complied with their leaders on so many matters, you know, including uh, you know, committing these atrocious acts of mass violence on the Eastern Front. Um, why did they choose differently on this matter of all matters? Right? And how does your conclusion shed light on this somewhat puzzling historical question? So I'll be honest and admit that was a really difficult question to answer while writing the book, especially because uh, none of the sources produced by the SS men or their wives that I found directly answered the issue. So I felt that to try and explain why SS families had an average of fewer than two children, I thought it was important to look at uh, different social or educational or economic factors that could have affected the decision or the ability of SS men to marry and to have at least four children. So in that last chapter, I look at a lot of these different factors. Um, One that caught my attention, for example, was that among the people who found the SS and its elitist ideals appealing were men with a college level or higher education. But this was a group of people that well before the Third Reich already tended to marry later in life and already had a lower average birth rate. And that later marriage age and that lower birth rate didn't change in this cohort by 1945. So that was one interesting kind of, I guess, social and educational factors to take a look at and explain how for this one group in the SS, how that could have made a difference if they were marrying later in life and having fewer children, thus they weren't having the four or more children that that Himmler wanted. So that was one example. Another factor that I thought was interesting uh, that, that had a role in why things failed as far as not having enough children was Himmler himself. For Himmler, things were very clear cut. He believed that he could issue decrees that his men would follow and that they would persuade their wives to obey as well. And with women in particular, Himmler objectified them as passive agents. Basically, he expected that ideology would have a stronger hold over SS men and their wives than personal desires. But in reality, the SS family community did not develop as a one-way conduit with orders issued from above and obeyed from below. That was absolutely certainly Himmler's intention, but reality did not reflect that ideal ambition uh, in many ways, be it the individual desires of SS men and their wives or larger situations like the Second World War. Circumstances constantly tempered uh, not only what Himmler could achieve, but also other SS officials who were dedicated to creating the family community. It tempered what they could achieve as well. Uh, So I thought that was an important factor in, in looking and trying to explain the outcome by the end of 1945 with what the SS had and had not done. Great. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think questions uh, surrounding sexuality are so interesting in the third Reich. And I think this issue, um, uh, you know, is um, very central to trying to understand uh, the, the, the sexual history of the third Reich. 
All right, Amy. Well, at this point, we've taken um, a lot of your time. And uh, I'd like to end the interview today with our traditional final question here at the New Books Network. And that question is, could you share some of your current research projects with our audience? What are you working on now? Sure. I actually just recently started a new project, and it's based off something from this book. So one of the things that I came across in doing the research and writing for this book is that uh, most SS couples, they weren't having four plus children, but most SS couples were capable of having children. Every Nearly every marriage produced at least a child. But for a minority of these couples, infertility was a problem. And SS medical officials tried to help these couples, although oftentimes the SS doctors would refer the couples to other specialists. And related to this issue of infertility was the subject of artificial insemination. Some patients inquired about it. Some doctors supported the other idea, while other doctors opposed it as a solution to infertility. And that is where my focus is right now, learning more about infertility and artificial insemination from the late Weimar period through the Third Reich. So this is a very important time with uh, research into gynecology and obstetrics and family. A lot of medical research is going on. And I really can't say more than that simply because right now I'm in the midst of figuring out exactly where I want to go with the research. but. That in a nutshell, artificial insemination, or yes, artificial insemination and infertility. That's what I'm looking at right now. And it always is kind of a cruel final question to ask someone after they put all the work uh, into producing a book uh, to say, okay, what are you working on now? So of course, uh, (laughs) it's very natural that you'd be in the the early stages of this next project, but it sounds uh, really interesting to me. And I look forward to reading about it, as I'm sure many of our listeners do. And if you turn this into um, another book, then uh, it might be interesting to bring you back on to the New Books Network at some point to talk about that. Great. All right. Well, Amy, I really appreciate that you gave us uh, so much of your uh, time today and your expertise. And I'm really happy that you agreed to be on the show. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Michael, for giving me this opportunity. Excellent. So to all of our listeners, you have been listening to an episode in New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan, and our guest today was Dr. Amy Carney. We discussed her recent book, Marriage and Fatherhood in the SS, published with University of Toronto Press in 2018. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope that you will continue to listen.